Hi, ladies. Hello. Hello. And for everybody out there, welcome to Radical Awakening. This is mental health and people of color. It's been kind of difficult the last couple of weeks in my life. So this is really an appropriate topic, I would think. Hmm. I can relate. See. What do I yeah. I think something is happening with like the universe or something like the stars or, you know, something is, is different because it just, the energy around me and the energy in my world just feels so different lately. And, um, you know, I feel a little bit more anxious than I've felt in a long time. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, just, it's just harder to get myself going than it, than it has been previously. And so, you know, when I think about mental health, a lot of people think that that might mean like, some big, giant, huge diagnosis that means that I can't function in my life. And it could mean that, but it could also mean like, I'm just struggling a little bit to, you know, be stay in my equilibrium. And I think that's where I'm at right now. I hear you. For me, from what I've seen with people of various ethnicities, that when you say the words mental health, there's this perception that that phrase means there's something wrong with you. And so right. I don't actually know a lot of Asian people that are seeking therapy for, you know, that, that outlet to kind of get a different perspective or a different worldview just to kind of help them walk through things, you know, or even just hear themselves talk. So, you know, I think that it's very interesting because mental health somewhere along the line, I think culturally for different cultures, they, it got a bad rap. And it, mm -hmm. I think it had it has a different meaning, uh, you know, that it's so, some sort of symbolic reference. And that even if you did need it, and even if you were going to get it, you certainly weren't going to tell your friends about it. Whereas I, I tend to think of mental health a bit more similarly um, with Zenobia. I think that mental health is just an awareness and a recognition that it's okay to have your own ebb and flow, you know, on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis and, or even a situational basis. So if there's a particular mm -hmm. situation, you know, it's causing a little stress, you know, I, I think that it's okay. I think it, it's good mental health to acknowledge that and then to allow what you need to kind of get whatever that balance is. I like that. Yeah. What about you, Wanda? I don't know. I struggle, I think, with my many years of experience in knowing how mental health has never been a priority specifically for people of color. And I find myself almost always feeling alone, even like within my own family, when people are going through things and we're talking about it. And, you know, I'll say something like, you know, maybe you should talk to a therapist about that. And I get this look like I'm growing a third eye. Right. And so oftentimes I find myself just biting my lip. <laughs> mm. I've always understood the importance of my mental health, like always. And like, I, you know, we've talked in the past about how when I was a kid, I knew that I wanted more. I knew that I wanted different. And I knew that I had to stay grounded in how I saw myself and what I believed about who I was. That's, I think, why I understand mental health in the way that I do, because regardless of what society told me, 
I always came back to my own thoughts to figure out where am I? What are you feeling about this? What does that mean? How are you now going to function? What decisions are you going to make? So, yeah, mental health and people of color don't have a great history. <laughs> no, you're re- you're right. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of it, if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, which is something we learn in like Psych 101, it speaks to the road to self-actualization. It's kind of like designed as a pyramid in the lower ring, rung mm-hmm. is food, clothing, and shelter. And then as you meet each rung, the needs in each rung, you can move up to what would ultimately take you to self-actualization. And and that and you do that several times over a lifetime in different areas. But for people of color, there has never been enough safety to focus on anything but food, clothing, and shelter. You can't really get to the next rung, which is safety and belonging, when you're picking cotton in somebody's cotton field or you're, you know, worried about the electric being turned off or you have to be picketing outside with signs that say, I am a man. This is a luxury conversation that many generations before us could never, never even imagine having because it just wasn't in their purview. Just wasn't something that they were were thinking about. Not only that the church, which a lot of us, our families were indoctrinated in when we were brought over here to the West, really shunned the idea of going outside of it for help. You know, it was always framed as demons or, you know, somebody is possessed or something wrong. That was, that was, that was really, or you prayed away. You know, so I remember when I was early in my career, I was working at um, this this place called the Mercy Center in Asbury Park. And um, it was actually the Family Resource Center. And they had a grant that really focused on Asbury Park and their specific needs as a community of color, because it used to be a real community of color, a lot of poverty. And there were a lot of churches on every corner, churches and liquor stores. And so my job was I was tasked to go to each church. I love the combination. (laughs) I know, right? I was churches and liquor stores in the community to find out what resources they offered the community. So like, Mm -hmm. do you offer clothing? Do you offer um, food? Do you offer housing assistance? Like, what do you offer the community so that if someone is in need, they can go to this book and look it up and find out where to go. Mm -hmm. You know that they wouldn't even talk, uh, some of them wouldn't even talk to us because they didn't believe in mental health. Now this is like in 1999. This was like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, not that long ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've come a long way. Yeah, we have come a long way, but I still feel like we have so far to go. Yep. We're kind of behind the eight ball. But Mm -hmm. considering where we have been, I think that we've come a long way because, you know, we are moving to think about, you know, how we think about things and how we're feeling and where these thoughts came from. And I don't think, like I said, that our generations before were able to do that. But we are doing it now and we may not all be going to therapy now and therapy isn't the only answer. You know, we are, there are lots of answers. Right. So I'm really excited about what I'm seeing. I think that um, for the most part, there's a lot more positive images behind getting therapy and taking care of your mental health. Sadly, it's intertwined with like misinformation, <laughs> but it's much more exposure than we ever had. 
So one of the questions then would, that comes to mind would be, you know, how can we contribute to changing that paradigm? How can we get the encouragement out there with the right messages? What are, what are the mm. potential solutions that, you know, we could offer that would encourage people in various communities to say, hey, that, that sounds like that might be a good option. Let me try that. I think empowering ourselves, like, you know, becoming um, really um, empowered consumers, right? First of all, I think we have to have more people that look like us mm -hmm. in healthcare. But I also think that if that's not possible, we don't necessarily need that. We just need to know that our doctors and our therapists and our coaches and whoever we're going to are open and invested in understanding life from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So I need to be willing to ask questions and to hold my stance. Like if I have a provider who's telling me what I need to do and is not open to my questions and my thoughts and my ideas about things, I need to be willing to say to that person, okay, I don't think it's going to work for me because mm -hmm. like the people of color have a history of being taken it uh, advantage of by the medical community. So there's yeah. a, a, an innate distrust. And so I think that the only way that's going to change is if I own that this is my body and I get to be in control of it. And you may be the expert on the medication or the expert on the counseling techniques <clears throat> on the interventions, but I'm the expert on me and we need to collaborate. And if we can't collaborate, then I can't work with you. But that's there are a lot of doctors, Anobia, that are not trained in people skills. True. And I think that, like you said, there's this long history of distrust. But when a doctor tells you something, that's the, that's it. That's, that's the conclusion. Like you, you don't necessarily challenge a doctor's opinion mm -hmm. or a doctor's diagnosis. Now, obviously we're starting to get away from that a little bit where people do seek out second and third opinions about things, but that's not very common, especially amongst people of color. I think that's where the change needs to happen. Mm -hmm. That's what Michelle was asking. How do we, how do we change that? I think that's where it needs to happen because if I were to take my car to the mechanic because my windshield wipers were broken and he were to tell me, Oh, it's your engine oil. And, and I'm going to charge you $400 for it. I'd be saying, what, how, Tell me, help me ex explain to me how my engine oil is affecting my windshield wipers. But if I go to the doctor and they tell me, you know, I say, I'm, I'm coming here for dry eyes and they, oh, your toenails are infected. <laughs> I'm trusting the doctor with that. Like, yes. So I'm going to trust them more with my body than I would trust my mechanic with my car. Yeah. You know, I feel like um, there's been more awareness on the physician end of the harmful impact of stress and anxiety on the body. I feel like the doctors are understanding that there's a correlation to symptoms and diseases in the body that are directly correlated to being able to manage stress and anxiety. So mm -hmm. it just kind of begs the question, like if they, if they do understand that, and they seem to understand that, at least at the family practice level, I'm wondering why then, you know, more therapists or more, you know, alternative solutions aren't offered. What was interesting to me is, you know, my daughter had a little period of anxiety this, this summer because she was, you know, getting a little anxious about her wedding. And what was interesting to me is that 
her doctor asked her what is she doing to mm. manage her stress mm. and, and like, so the implication there is that it's still it's great that you asked the question because obviously there's a cognizance that you know her her physical symptoms may have been related to her stress but then for me um you know almost like doc i feel like doctors should have at the ready you know all the different things that you can try to lower your stress mm -hmm. all the different things that you can try to manage your anxiety um and i think that that should really be on there all the different mental health approaches to doing that but i don't think that's the way healthcare is structured and I have to tell you, it's also disheartening because I'm not going to say all psychiatrists are this way because I'm sure that's not the case, but a very large amount of psychiatrists that I've worked with and that I know of um, are all about prescribing. And in many cases, primary doctors are the same. Like, you know, they see like, you know, four patients in an hour. So that means you're spending 15 minutes with me. And in that 15 minutes, you're figuring out what's wrong with me to diagnose me and then to treat me and prescribe whatever it is you're going to prescribe. I'm like, how you figure me out in 15 minutes is a, a bit mm. concerning. Uh, at my practice, we had hired a, a psychiatric nurse practitioner that I was quite disappointed with because it was in their mind that they should have one patient per 15 minutes because that's how it would be worth to work with patients so that the reimbursement rate was much higher. Now, obviously, since this person no longer works with my practice, but it's an example of what happens quite often across the board. Um, mm. And again, I'm not going to say all doctors are this way, but there's mm. a good portion of them that are. And I don't know. I, I think also about, you know, okay, so if you know, people of color are going to their primary care doctor or being referred directly to a psychiatrist, um, then also the understanding is a, a pill will fix me. Mm. So why would I want to sit with a therapist and do the work? Why would I want to go outside of even therapy and do the work, right? With however it is you choose to do it, whether it's in therapy or not, because I have a magic pill. Mm. So... Yeah, we all want the easier, softer way. Yes. I can't tell you how many people have come to my practice and they're like, oh, you know, I think I'm struggling with ADHD or I'm struggling with like depression or I'm struggling with this or that. And then, you know, you do their intake and then afterwards they're like, so, you know, do you think uh, I need medication prescribed? And oftentimes, you know, if they do need it, we say yes. And we then refer them to either a psychiatrist or whoever is in network. And then once they get the medication, they don't want to do therapy anymore. Mm. Oh, I feel better. They say, mm. okay, but, but, but that's not supposed to be long-term. So I've experienced kind of the opposite of that. Really? A lot of my clients um, in my practice don't want to take medication. They don't trust it. And I feel sad for them in some ways because it feels like they're suffering. It's almost like what the way I conceptualize it is you have a broken arm, but you don't want to take Motrin or anything for it because mm -hmm. you're afraid you're going to get addicted to it or it's going to alter your mind in some way. And that to me, so then you're walking around in pain for so long that's kind of unnecessary, but you do have to... I, 
and and I feel like they're very brave because they want to do the work so that they can feel better. Mm-hmm. But they're in pain while they're doing the work, and sometimes it makes it harder on them to be in pain during the work, and because the pain is is really what they end up focusing on, like the things that are causing them pain, instead of being able to look at the larger picture because there's always something happening in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that's something that I struggle with my patients with with you know really trying to help them to kind of normalize the fact that it's okay to take something. Right. To get out of the immediate source of pain. And I truly believe that if you are in a position where you're really, really struggling, you shouldn't just shun the idea of medication because the intention is to help you take the edge off of whatever's going on so that you can then figure out the, the permanent solution Mm-hmm. to the issue. And, you know, let's be real. There are some people out there who need medication long-term. There mm-hmm. are, but I can't tell you that that's the majority of the population. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not even half of the population, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'll, I guarantee you that half that population does take medication. Mm. And, you know, like, especially when you start really young, that really is like disheartening for me to see mm-hmm. because the younger you are, the longer you're on psychotropic meds, then you have some serious side effects in your future, mm-hmm. you know, all the way from dementia to God knows what else. I mean, I've seen it. That's very scary. It is. And I've even seen women, you know, pregnant taking antidepressants. Um, I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. That can't be good for the baby. For, for me, what I've noticed um, in my practice is that there are more people of color that are trying out more holistic approaches to having that mind body balance to just to kind of feel that they're they're definitely making efforts to lower their stress and anxiety and they're seeking the you know alternative holistic approaches to doing that and i have found that to be very encouraging i noticed in the last couple of months there's an uptick in women of color who are becoming yoga teachers. You know, when I'm doing my sound healings, there's more people of color and they're driving for like 45 minutes to an hour Mm -hmm. um, to get there, you know, who want to, you know, try something different as a means of bringing their minds at least into a place of stillness where they can catch their breath and just have peace, you know, for a little while. And so, you know, I feel like there's there there is what you were saying earlier. There is something happening, Zenobia, um, where something is shifting because it's something I've been noticing more and more of. I follow a lot of you know the holistic and the spiritual channels on YouTube and Instagram, and I notice more and more, which is very encouraging for me that there's there's ethnic people of all varieties who are now coming out and using their voice to encourage each other and other people, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of get in the game of, of, of finding those moments of balance and, and, and how to do that. And what's interesting to me, when you were talking about medication, the first thing that came to my mind was that the, um, the mushrooms have become popular as an alternative mm-hmm. you know, way of kind of like allowing the mind that space. Um, there's been a surge. And I think it kind of ties into what Zenobia was talking about, it seems like more and more people are kind of wanting to lean away from the 15 minute diagnosis and here's your pills to, 
you know, really sensing that like you didn't really fully do me in 15 minutes. So mm -hmm. now I'm going to go out and I'm going to find other ways of, of getting did, you know, yeah. and more and I'm seeing it more and more. There's like this major infusion. So on one hand, I'm encouraged. Um, I am encouraged because it, it's a noticeable different on social mm -hmm. difference on social media. Um, but on the other hand, I still don't think therapy is is being normalized i could be wrong yeah but you know um maybe there's an impact there as well um that i'm not aware of um but um i do notice that more people of color are being very aggressive about seeking alternative approaches to yeah. mental well-being isn't taking mushrooms cost psychedelic therapy or something to that effect yeah i think it is now i believe so yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I see therapy as being normalized in our communities. Um, and I also feel like, um, you know, behavioral medication is an option, you know, like, you know, yoga and, and um, journaling and somatic kind of therapies. Um, also, you know, coloring, being out in nature you know, alternative therapies, sort of like, you know, um, using nature as a healing tools, crystals, all those things I think have their place. But the thing is, is they're not immediate. Mm -hmm. And so that is the difference between taking something and using the alternative sort of behavioral therapy. You have to be willing to continue to practice and you have to be willing to have a waiting period where you're not really seeing results but that you're still implementing because knowing that like when you go to the gym you know the first day you go to the gym you're not going to be running a triathlon or doing a triathlon mm -hmm. but once you're there for a while you just might I, I think that's so important that whatever your approach is, of course, it, it is more healthy to everything in life, I think, is a practice, whether you're going to seek meditation, some form of meditation, um, therapy, um, pharmaceutical assistance, or maybe, you know, the, the, the kind of the more natural way the the mushrooms approach. I think anything is a practice because you can't do anything one time. And, and mm -hmm. just think that, that that's going to be the end all be all. I think there has to be an exploration of the self, you know. I think, Michelle, but I think, honey, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's the reason why the issue with the quote unquote magic pill is the problem because people just want a pill to take care mm -hmm. of the problem so they could just be on with it. And let's be honest, taking medication is much faster, you know, than sitting through how many months of therapy or trying other methods like, you know, meditation or exercise or whatever the case is. So I find it to be that if people could under really understand, you know, we need to psychoeducate that yes, um, the antidepressants and psychotropic meds will help you, but it's not meant to be long-term. Perhaps people would understand, okay, I got to figure the root cause of my problem and find real solutions mm -hmm. so that I'm not struggling with other problems later on. Mm -hmm. I, and sometimes I it is, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, that whatever assistive approaches that you're gonna use, I agree that, that the most 
important part of the process is to really identify sources of trauma and triggers and mm -hmm. then to have somebody help you guide right. you through that healing process. Totally. 100%. What were you going to say, Zenobia? I was going to say sometimes it is meant to be long term because we do have trait versus state issues. Yeah. Right? So state issues are issues that have happened in our environment and sort of like some kind of trauma, immediate trauma that we may need to have medication for temporarily. But if it's a trait issue, if if I'm not producing, you know, neurotransmitters like I should, or if I'm not producing chemicals in my brain, I may need it long term, but you won't know until you start working with someone to determine what the where the issues stem from. Right. But I, I think my issue is just with the that small population of, not small, excuse me, with the population of people who really could function without medication, but choose not to, because okay. mm -hmm. talking about their problems or figuring out other methods is just too much. They can't deal with that right now. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. later on, they have irreversible damage, you know, done to their bodies as a result of being dependent on medication. There's the other topic that I've, I've been, seeing this in my practice and in, in all of my professional experience. And it's the one thing that I notice is a lot of people who suffer from like depression and anxiety and like just difficulty finding balance in their lives seem to be missing one thing. I, I find it to be somewhat of a common denominator. And, and that is like a disconnect in spirituality. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I feel so alone or I feel lonely. And, and they'll tell me, you know, I have a good job. I make enough money. I'm married or I have a partner. I have children. You know, they're like, I got what a lot of people may not have. I should be happy, mm -hmm. but I'm not. Something's missing. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. when we touch on the topic of, or, you know, where are you spiritually? And they're like, oh, I, I don't, I don't need, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Wait, wait, hold up. Stop the train. <laughs> what do you mean you don't need that? And then, you know, because religion is so intertwined with the term spirituality, right? We get we get mixed up with the idea that you're supposed to belong to a religion. And because you don't have God, you know, you're not happy. This, that, and the third. And the idea of you don't have God means you don't go to church every Sunday and you don't participate in all kinds of like religious activities. But I, I see spirituality much bigger than just going to church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And the connection, the spiritual connection that I see void in people's lives, oftentimes is why I see the disconnect, why they seemingly feel lonely and like something's missing in their lives. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys agree or not, but it's it's something I've seen. I think it's really humbling for me as a practitioner. You know, I went to, to school to help people feel better, to he help them heal themselves. And, and I can't. I don't have that kind of power. Mm. And I, I think that I can ha help you with techniques to, right. you know, help you to alleviate some of the pain you're in. But ultimately, I think that there's a power greater than me that needs yes. to be tapped into in order for you to find healing. I agree. What are your thoughts, Michelle? You know, for me, I think my journey regarding spirituality has been very helpful to me because it's enabled me to 
um, really be able to embrace everyone's perspective, I think, about spirituality. And for people who may be atheist or agnostic, I think that they're still capable of mm -hmm. having the spiritual journey of a return to the self. Yeah. And, you know, to that place of being able to embrace the self and love the self, because to me, spirituality is, is all about love and the various ways that we approach it, we term in different labels like religion or in phrases like spirituality, but really it's about, you know, moving back into that space of love, especially with the self, because I think a lot yeah. of us are very unforgiving about a lot of things for a various number of reasons, but to be able to close the gap on those judgments, I think of the self that we have more often than not, we're our biggest critics bigger than, yeah. than anybody else. And that's not loving. Right. Um, so for me, I, you know, was raised and, you know, in, in Christianity and, you know, then as I got older, kind of wanted to dabble in different religions and they were nice, but I could feel that it wasn't quite my path. And now I understand it. I didn't used to understand it when people would say I'm spiritual, but not religious. And so I feel like I kind of had this journey where, yes, now I understand what that means. And my spirituality is about love. And as long as I kind of make sure I stay in that place, then I can see how everyone else's spiritual journey is about love too, even mm -hmm. if they're calling it by different names. So yeah. when we, when you, you brought up the subject, I agree with you. I think it's the disconnection from love in some way, mm -hmm. um, either from understanding the self or understanding the self's role in the cosmos or however anybody wants to look at it, but it is a disconnection, but I think from the self and from love. Um, and I think that's why you feel alone. I think that when you feel very saturated in love as an energy, as a feeling, as an emotion, it's hard to feel anything negative. Um, it's hard to feel lonely in that way that, because truly we are never alone. We're so connected to each other. Yes. And we're so connected to the animals on the planet and the earth. And we're, we're very much in tune with the cycles. We're all really connected. So to feel alone, I think, is another phrase of saying, I feel disconnected. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I don't think it has to be, I agree with you too, Wanda. I don't think it has to be about religion. But for me, if we're going to, it's a broader term of, I feel disconnected from love, even the love for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the fact that, you know, people who are religious are able to, you know, network with a group of people who are like-minded um, and they're able to fellowship and they're able to support and encourage one another. Um, it's, it's when you get really deep into the nitty gritty of religions that things, in my opinion, start to get funky. Um, because if you don't adhere to a specific set of rules, then you become the outcast or the black sheep, or you just stick out like a sore thumb. And there are, unfortunately, in my opinion, many religions that make you feel ashamed. Um, and so I've seen so many people, you know, move away from religion as a result of not being able to continue to 
um, share intimately a spiritual journey with those people that they have created relationships with for a, long, a prolonged period of time, right? Like if you belong to a church and you do something funky, everybody finds out about it because you know, gossip runs real quick. It is like you did something on Monday morning by Sunday, by Monday evening, everybody knows about it in the church community. That's been my experience. And so essentially, right, you are now looked at as, oh, you're dirty. You did X. And so that quickly starts to make people feel like, hmm. I can't, I can't go see Zenobia anymore, you know, at the women's Bible study because she probably heard about what happened or, you know, I'm now, every time I go to church on Sunday now, it's like weird for me to sit next to the same group of people I might've been sitting with before and just all kinds of like uncomfortable, sometimes downright humiliating experiences. Mm. And so I guess what I'm trying to get to is the fact that you don't need to be in a religion to be spiritual, right? Um, you can still have that very deep and profound connection with God um, if you so choose to. Um, it's great to have a church to belong to, in my opinion. And it, and in fact, if you can, I encourage it. Um, but it's not necessary to have that deep relationship with God which I consider to be love. And so essentially that is the missing piece for many of the people that I've come across that say, I'm really lonely. I feel alone. Even though I'm married, I feel alone. Even though I have kids, I'm alone. Even though I have friends, I'm alone. Even though I have money, I'm alone. Or I feel alone. So yeah, that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I think, and I've had a prejudice with the church for a little while, so this may not even be accurate since I've been reviewing some of my ideas about things, um, but I'm going to put it out there since we're talking, is that when people go to church and they find Christ, they feel their sins are forgiven, which is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Mm -hmm but the church doesn't teach them how to live morally, mm. specifically think morally. So all I have to do is ask for forgiveness and I am a Christian, so I'm good. But then, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't give them skills for like, how do I weigh this out? You know, what would Jesus do is really good if your mind is, if you if you're thinking with a moral like like if you're using a, a a moral compass that is balanced, but if you're not, you might be able to kind of tell yourself Jesus would do anything. So mm -hmm. I think that they need to do a better job of working with people and thinking about doing things different. Because my prejudice has been that people go to church and behave like holy rollers and then be are outside of the church, like, <laughs> you know, doing all kinds of craziness. Yeah. And I can't wrap my mind around that. I do know that we are all sinners right yeah. that's how they that's how they frame us in church yeah. so i understand that there's room for error but that's different than not teaching how to be righteous or whatever 
Right. So there's a saying in behind my culture <laughs> that, um, and you know, I, I'm not knocking Catholics by all means necessary. I'm nobody to judge, but there's a saying in my culture that Catholics go to church on Sunday to ask for forgiveness, what they have done and what they're about to do that current week. Mm. <laughs> and it kind of is a reflection, I think, of what you just described, because you're right there. Who is holding you up to this moral standard if it's not you? Right. And I think that talks a lot about integrity, because it's like, what would you do even if nobody is watching? So you'll do the right thing if all eyes are on you. But if they're not, will you still? Exactly. Exactly. And that's a lesson I've always tried to teach my kids. Like, you know, um, one time we were driving, it was late at night and there was a red light, but there were no cars. There was nobody, nobody anywhere in sight. And I don't know if it was my son or my daughter who was like, Ma, just go. We're so tired. And I'm like, it's a red light. And they're like, but nobody's watching. And I turned around and I was like, but I am. I'm watching. Mm -hmm. so, you know, nobody. Yeah, nobody will know, but I will. And, right. you know, somebody would say, well, that's stupid. It was a red light. But it's that's just that's what I live my life like on a general sense. So it, even though it, it, in some people's eyes, it's stupid. It was a red light. But it's that's how I think about all things. So if I'm going to do something funky when nobody's watching for this thing, then I'm, pro I'm probably likely to do the same thing with something else. One of the things that as I was in a couple of different Christian religions was I never could quite get comfortable with the criteria that seemed to be set that would determine who was good and who is bad. Mm. I, I grew up in a very diverse family with everything. I have friends and family members that are gay you know and it just it, it seemed like that never quite jived with me that if a certain person doesn't fit what the criteria is which for me is very conditional and feels like conditional love if you are these things then you are worthy to be loved and right. I think in my own journey of, of wanting to love myself better, you know, it's made me look at other people that have felt disenfranchised um, by religion and by that criteria that doesn't allow for someone to express themselves as being gay or doesn't allow for them to express themselves experientially on how they want to live their lives. And I, I had to kind of take a step back and really evaluate if that was okay, would it be okay for me? No, it's not okay for me, even though I want to be loved unconditionally. I would, I, it feels good for me to love other people unconditionally. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think for me, I started to move more into the spiritual, but not religious, because I wanted to have my own definition of God, the universe, one source, one consciousness that God loves everybody. And if man can't do that, that's okay. But I want to kind of lean into trying to, to be more like that. And the whole yeah. question of before, what would Jesus do? Jesus would sit down with and have fellowship with anyone. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the traditional dogma of religions, I find to be, I find to be um, disenfranchising to certain people. I know people who have been 
traumatized as children growing up, you know, in, in certain paradigms where they were told they were going to go to hell. That's a lot for yeah. a kid, you know, and they don't really know what hell is, but what they're, what they're internalizing is, is I'm bad, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that as, as a society, as a whole, like our entire country, the entire Western culture needs to kind of catch up to what other cultures have already been practicing for hundreds of years, which is love for their community and the acceptance for their community talking about tribal nations aboriginal nations eastern cultures you know but but we have created this bizarre culture <laughs> where i'm going to judge you and mm -hmm. i'm going to get as many people to agree with me that you're not complying with what makes me comfortable right. so now we're all going to label you as something aberrant or something else and so Right. That's the shameful and humiliation part that I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I think that, but, you know, I also see a couple of religions that are being more welcoming. So on the other hand, I mean, it's not a huge wave, but I have noticed that there are, are various um, religions from various backgrounds that are starting to be more opening mm -hmm. and more welcoming to people that don't fit the typical structure of, you know, the Old Testament or the New Testament, or even, um, you know, some of the other books that are very prevalent in the world. And that is encouraging. Mm -hmm. if, even if you only see a handful of them, that's mm -hmm. a handful more than there was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. So I feel like we are moving in, in a good positive direction. Mm -hmm. We just kind of have to be patient with each other. But mm -hmm. judgment as an energy, is I don't think is is compatible with the energy of love. Mm -hmm. It's compatible with separation and you're different from me. Whereas love is more binding and unifying. Right. Um, so I, I, I become a little hypersensitive. Well, I think. The Bible says, Michelle, that the, the that love is not prideful, right? It does not, what's the verse? Love right. is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not self-seeking. There I you go. My favorite, it's my favorite. Right. To kind of wrap this back around, I have to say that one thing that I've noticed too is that with people of color who seek mental health, especially in the churches, sometimes don't get the right guidance is the word I think I want to use. Because if you belong to a church, that will impose that shameful kind of um solution to your issue whatever it is you know one of the most sensitive topics that you know i hear oftentimes is when a couple wants to divorce mm -hmm. and the church is like no absolutely not you know god is against divorce divorce is you know final you don't break apart what god put together you know and and i get that like i get that when you make that kind of life commitment to another person you shouldn't easily be like well you didn't put the toilet seat down. So I think you need to divorce. You know, we need to sign these papers. Right. Um, and of course, I'm making light of a serious situation. But the reality is that I've seen a lot of women and men suffer in relationships that are abusive um, in so many ways. Um, and the reason why they don't do what is necessary for them individually is because the church will not allow it. Right. Or their religion will not allow it. And so then you walk around with this, you know, shameful humiliating um way of being identified within the church people will at all cost do whatever it takes to avoid being that person mm. um, and i have a, i have a hard time with that so 
I want to say that we need to be really careful when we're going out to seek mental health services, right? From people who are not trained, from, from people who are not educated in the field, whether it's in a wellness area or in straight mental health treatment, because you really can be put in a situation that will make your particular issue 10 times worse than what it was before you even went to a pastor or a reverend or whatever, a minister at a church, for sure. Yeah. I remember when I was at that same place, the Mercy Center, there was an intern there and she was in her master's for counseling and she was in a very abusive relationship. I mean, extremely abusive. I pray for her sometimes because I wonder if she's still alive. Her, her pastor kept telling her to go back. You have to go back. You have to make that marriage work. You have to make it work. And even for me, when I left my husband three years ago, people in the black community, a lot of older women are very religious and they feel like they can just say what they feel. And so quite a few of them told me that, you know, you're still married to him and you can't leave him and you're doing wrong. You know, it's just so dismissive. Mm -hmm. They don't know what I lived through. Right. And I don't think that a loving God would want me to stay somewhere where my mental health is challenged. I 100% agree. Because let's just be clear here. And I, I have the verse now, so I can actually say it. Like it's 1 mm -hmm. Corinthians 13, 4. Mm -hmm. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. That tells you what love is not. And if you're in a relationship and you are in that environment where the situation does not look like what love is supposed to look like, I'm pretty sure God would not approve of that. And I absolutely would say that if you ask Jesus, you know, what would you do in this situation? I don't think he would condone you staying in a marriage where you're really like struggling and you're being abused and it's it could even be dangerous. Yep. I don't think so either. But some church women do. You know, so it's and I, I hate to say it like that. That's that that sounds like I'm and like I said, I have a prejudice towards church. Not that I don't go to church. I love church, but. There are some things I just don't understand, I think could be done different. And I do understand that humans are, and my prejudice is not against God. It's against people who make up the rules about right. how I'm supposed to serve God. And that's the problem that I have. The biggest problem for me is the people who make the rules in the church, mm -hmm. because I don't understand how you're like a pastor or a minister of like a mega church. You got tons of people dying from homelessness and lack of food, security, and all kinds of things. But you chilling in a Rolls Royce, mm -hmm. flying from place to place, wearing some expensive old, you know, Armani suits. But you're preaching the word of God and mm -hmm. how we should be giving and how we should be loving and compassionate, right? I, I can't get with that. I cannot. Uh, you know, I think that if I wanted to wrap up the the conversation about mental health for people of color, I would encourage everyone to touching on something Zenobia said much earlier to really listen to that inner voice. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a sense of rightness that you feel when you're walking your path, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that when you're being true to yourself and walking your path and expressing who you are, that the mental health will find that balance mm -hmm. that you'll be able to sail through the challenges 
allow yourself space to feel you know the difficulties and then keep on moving i think the difficulty is again when we separate from that love especially from loving ourselves so if if you want to move into exploring an improved level of mental health i would first start the the initial baby steps would be to follow your voice and and what zenobi was saying earlier you know when you're sitting in front of a practitioner that's not right for you mm -hmm. oh yeah you know you know so yeah the first step is following your voice mm -hmm. so that as you're moving through and exploring how to keep your balance and moving into your joy following your passion finding your happiness that's the first leg is relying on your voice and trusting your inner voice as yeah. you move through yeah mm -hmm. i agree with you michelle and i really do emphasize that when you are sitting in front of a mental health provider a therapist counselor whatever you really should not feel uncomfortable and like they don't get you mm. because i can't tell you how many people have told me that they have been to therapy and that it was difficult um and i don't mean difficult in like talking about the challenges in your life i mean it was difficult to connect like if you don't feel like when you meet your therapist you can kick back and just kind of take a deep breath or if you don't feel like you're in a safe space you're in the wrong place yes that's true because i can't i can tell you how many times i've been in therapy with a therapist and i'm just like you're not the one but most people don't know that i want everybody to know that if it doesn't feel right there's plenty of therapists out there thank god right yeah all right my people of color and all of the people of the world mm -hmm. i hope this was helpful for you it was Ladies. helpful for me <laughs> <laughs> that's funny enough the intention here <laughs> i think i think it's helpful for there to be conversations and there yeah. to be more conversations absolutely absolutely well in the name of love be yes. well everybody take care <laughs>